This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. Carolyn Plummer has been a working comic for nearly 25 years, and she's in the process of filming a sitcom pilot, Finding the Funny. I recently lured her into my basement for an interview. So, Carolyn, your email address is funny bitch, but are you also an attention whore? No. That, that's actually, it comes from a story after a show. Some guy in northern Maine said, you're a real funny bitch. And it kind of stuck as a nickname. And um, I've had that email address forever. Your father, he was a minister. What was that like growing up um, with him? I'm the youngest of three children, and he's a congregational minister. So it's not like a really strict religion. It's basically just the Ten Commandments and live your life right. You sing. There's no confession. We didn't use real wine at communion. It was grape juice, unsweetened grape juice. It was fine. I mean, I got in trouble a lot at Sunday school for not taking it seriously. I got kicked out of the handbell choir for not taking it seriously. <laughs> but I didn't have a very good bell, so I didn't ring it very often. So I uh, got into trouble. But I grew up, like, we were in the parsonage right next to the church when I was really little. And my dad would go write sermons, and I'd run all over the church and, you know, get on the pulpit and talk into the microphone and play the pipe organ and all this other stuff. So I have a lot of good memories of church. My dad still swears when he smashes his thumb with a hammer. You know what I mean? Like, he's not He's like, human. Yeah. And people are always like, oh, he must have been really strict. I'm like, he was kind of strict. But then my parents got divorced, and it was totally different. Free for all? Yeah. I was kind of on my own. My mom worked, and, you know, I worked at 13. I was babysitting at 11. So I was busy. What? stories do you have from childhood i had a neighbor named stewie stinchfield he's Stuart stinchfield the third and i was always getting into stewie stinky stewie stinchfield <laughs> um did he go into the septic business no he actually went he's actually a really accomplished stonemason he was my next door neighbor and his parents owned a grocery store his parents were older because they had stewie late in life and we would go over there, and I would get in so much trouble. Like, he had snowmobiles, and I'd get it stuck on a tree. Or he had a go-kart, and I hit a stone wall. And I broke my arm at his house and had to go tell my dad. <laughs> but he had all the fun toys. Oh, he had everything. It was great. And he was always – he was really good with mechanics. So he was always, like, souping up the engine or doing something. And my dad's like, you can't go to Stuart's house. He would never call him Stewie. He's like, you can't go to Stewie's house. They're remodeling the roof or their house, and there's nails. And I went over there. Of course, I stepped on a nail and had to go get a tetanus shot. And there was so, always trouble brewing uh, Yeah, always Stewie's. Stewie's. <laughs> what made you want to become a comic? This is a longer story. I did a lot of theater when I was a kid. I was in a lot of plays. I was a munchkin and a winky and the Wizard of Oz. And I had a really cool first grade teacher who um, ended up being friendly with her granddaughter. And we would spend the whole summer doing sketches and skits at her house because she had all the costumes there. And um, she was just a really innovative thinker. And then the, the 70s when I was growing up, like she had 13, when I was in first grade, she had 13 reading groups. And they said, you can't have 13 reading groups. She's like, why? They're all at different levels. Kids learn because of that. You know, like someone who didn't like to read actually started because she'd spend more time with that kid. So she was kind of forward thinking when people weren't doing that as much. So I did a lot of theater with her. I was in a lot of plays. I loved being on stage. And I liked getting the laugh. 
But it's different when you're doing theater because you're interpreting someone else's work. You're playing a character. And then as I got older, I really liked the Carol Burnett show. Oh, yeah, right. I remember that. And Harvey Corman. And yes. I loved when Harvey Corman and Tim Conway would get the others to break character and they'd start laughing. I thought that was awesome. And then um, I started watching Evening at the Improv. And then they had um, MTV's Half Hour Comedy Hour. Yes. Um, VH1's Stand Up Spotlight. So that was like in high school. I started watching all that. Like, you didn't even need school. You could just find comedy. Yeah. So in I was life like, this is cool. To learn. Like, I wonder how you do that put it in the back of my mind and then i went to college and then they'd bring in comics and one of my friends greg who was like one of my really good friends he was like you should do this you're funnier than that guy and i was like yeah okay whatever i don't know how to do that and then when i graduated what was your degree english writing with a history minor not bad for a comic. Yeah, but at the time, I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> Every English major in history. Because <laughs> you don't, I don't gra- want to graduate. I want to, I want to get a master's. And then you a don't really graduate. And there's no like real path after that, you know. Um, so I was waiting tables in Wolfboro, and I saw an ad for a comedy class. And I read about it. It said, I'm home from L.A., and I'm teaching a class in my mom's basement in a condo in Manchester, New Hampshire. That's funny. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that sounds That'll safe. pull you in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was like, I'll call the guy and see. If I have Wednesday off, I'll call. I had Wednesday off. Hadn't had Wednesday off all summer. Sounds so. like a cover for a guy who can't get a girl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's so far from the truth. If you knew this guy, he's like the nicest guy on the planet. So I was, I called, and he was cool. His name is Dave McLaughlin, and... So he's, I said, well, what does the class entail? And I had money to burn. I was making money every day, waiting tables. And it was, I know it's not a bad gig, really. No. And it was reasonable for the class. So he told me what it was all about. He goes, I'll teach you how to structure jokes and mic technique. And at the end, you get to perform um, at a show. Oh, nice. And I was like, okay, cool. Sign me up. So I took everyone's day off, and it was at night, and it was his mom's condo, and he wasn't a weirdo. He didn't drive a van. (laughs) You kept your clothes on. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There are no pictures taken. Um, And he taught me a lot. And then at the performance, the headliner was George Hamm out of Maine, who doesn't do comedy much anymore. But he ended up being a dear friend of mine, too. And he headlined, and he goes, you're funny. You should keep doing this. And I said, oh, okay. And I drank a lot to get on stage. And then Dave was very encouraging, too. He gave me numbers for open mic nights. And I What do you mean numbers? Phone numbers. Because at the time, you couldn't just sign up online because it was, you know. The, the old days. The old days where you had to get directions and hope you found the place. There was no ways. There was no apps. There was. So he gave me numbers of bookers in the Boston area. Oh, New you Hampshire area. call them. Call them. You'd set up a time to come and do a five-minute set, you know, at the Comedy Connection Faneuil Hall, which is no longer there. Dick Doherty's um, comedy place called Remington's, which was is now part of Emerson. It's their cafeteria. It's one of the first places I did comedy. And so he set me up with all these people, and I started doing open mic nights. And I did a contest at Patrick's Pub in Guilford, and I tied with this other kid, Brian, who doesn't do comedy anymore? I don't remember his last name. But You've outlasted so many. Yeah, so we won and we split the two hundred dollar prize. We each won a hundred bucks, and uh, then that was sponsored by a booker, and that booker started giving me stage time. So once I started doing stage time, it just kind of progressed from there. I stuck with it. I honed my act, but 
the hardest part for me when I first started was I wasn't confident on stage. I was kind of self-conscious. And the other thing was coming up with material. Because I was like, I like stand-up, but I'm not political. I don't know what I can talk about. And then I saw Kevin Meany do his tight pants bit about his family (laughs) and his mom. And he was like, we're not tight pants people. Absolutely fell in love with him and his comedy. And I said to myself, well, he just talks about his family. And I kind of took that and I said, well, I can talk about my family. And it sort of progressed from there. We all have dysfunctional families or funny stories in our families. And it sounds like those stories are boring, but they're not. Well, Other people and that's eat where it you, up. Yeah, that's where if you, you tell it the right way. You relate to people, yes, because they can relate to it, and then you find the funny in that. And that's basically what a comic does. It, they comment on. There, there's different types of comedy. Obviously, there's people that that take it as a social platform to talk about injustices yes. and things like that. There's other people that just do relatable comedy and try to make people laugh. But there's usually some sort of message overall within comedy. And that's kind of what comics are. Like they're the social commentators of the society. Yes, they are. The satirists. Yeah. They're like, you know what, we can go through life and we can just plot along and not enjoy it. Or here's a different perspective. And that's one thing I love about comedy. Do you have any horror stories from being on stage? (laughs) Where do I start? Uh, I mean, I've dealt with hecklers. I don't usually get heckled anymore. What do you do? Um, It depends on the heckler. For me, I try to just illustrate to the person that's interrupting me that I have the upper hand and you're not going to ever get the upper hand by either shutting them down or saying, you know, making them look dumb. And it's a fine line because you can go too far and then the audience sees you as the substitute teacher and now you have to... A cruel person. Yeah, so now you have to build all that energy back up. So I try to be fun with it and be like, okay, you know, this isn't going to work if you keep talking. Yeah, and that guy who heckled you paid to get in. Right. Which is ironic. But But what, he wants attention, I guess. Yeah, that's usually what it is. And being a woman, sometimes you get... Like, if you're the woman on the show and no one else is on the show and someone says something because they think that they can take advantage of you, that you're not going to stand up to them, I immediately show them, oh, no, I'm not going to put up with your crap. And they usually stop heckling. So So. set the scene for us when you're back behind the curtain, about to come on stage, looking at the audience, thinking about what you're going to say that night. What's going on during the show? In your head. Well, before the show, I like to get there and kind of see how old the audience is. (laughs) Just average because... Right, you want to read the audience. Right, because college kids are much younger than college kids when I started. And they have a different um, thing that they think is funny. And they have a different tolerance for certain things. Because the generations that are coming up now, everybody's inclusive. They don't like it when you make fun of people. Even if you're making fun of yourself... Like they have a totally different perspective than people my age. They don't even like self-deprecating humor that much? Not really. Wow. I like, didn't know that. Like, I knew they were inclusive. They're, everything's inclusive. So if you even make fun of someone and you're not making fun of who that someone is or what that someone is about and you're not making fun of someone's disability, they sometimes take it the wrong way and they're like because they would never talk about that. So you have to kind of be get an idea of who's in your audience. And I stay away from politics because it polarizes your audience. Because I'm not going to, 
I mean, there's things that are funny that you can say, but you never want to divide your audience. You want them to work as one group. And I'm more of a storyteller comic where I talk about my family, but I make it funny. For me, I'm not really volatile as a comic. Like, I don't really set people off or anything like that. I'm fairly clean. (laughs) You smell good. Thank you. I walk the line as far as, like, I'm more innuendo than in your face. And it served me well. But it's tough. Like, when I first started, I wasn't super confident. So in my head, I had a mantra that I would say all the time. And it was sort of a takeoff from Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live when he used to look in the mirror (laughs) and say, (laughs) you're smart enough, you're good enough, and doggone it, people like you. That's sweet. in my head, I would say. It's true. You're smart enough, you're good enough, and people think you're funny. And I would say that over and over. We all need that. Yeah. Um, But now I just kind of... I listen to the other comics to see what people are reacting to and if they're shying away from a certain topic, like say they're being really graphic about some sexual thing. I'm like, okay, they're not really open to that. Oh, you mean when there are other comics right before you? Yeah. So that's during a whole lineup. Yeah. So yeah, that's not a really good first. tool. Yeah, that's a good advantage when you're not going first. But when you're going first, you have to feel the audience out yourself. When it falls flat, what's that like? It's horrible. I mean, it's horrible in the sense that I've been doing it long enough now that I can recover, but there were times where I had to do my jokes in a certain order, I'd get screwed up, and I couldn't remember the next thing, and it's the worst feeling in the world, like bombing completely, where the audience just won't get on board with you, is the worst feeling in the world, because you're opening yourself up. It's something you created, something you thought was funny. Yeah, you wouldn't have said it otherwise. Right. So... When no one laughs at that, it's like this feeling of just failure that just can eat you up inside. But, like, I remember early on I was at Nick's Comedy Stop, and I bombed. I bombed hard. Like, hard. I was new. And uh, my friend Spike was there. (laughs) Spike Tobin. And he said, we're going over to Remington's. It was across the street. And I was like, no, I'm quitting comedy. I don't want to do comedy anymore. (laughs) I was, like, ready to cry. And, uh... Not a big crier, but I was ready to cry. I felt that bad. And he goes, we're going over and you're doing a guest spot. I was like, you really don't want to. So I went over there. I did. He goes, you're doing the same jokes and you're going to do it in front of this audience. I said, all right. So I did the same jokes and I got laughs. He's like, it isn't always you. Sometimes it is the audience. Good lesson. Yeah. And I was so appreciative, but I, do, I don't like to blame the audience. But sometimes it is the audience. They just they can't relate to you or they're drunk or whatever. But I bombed hard. I was like, I'm done with this. (laughs) And he made me get back on stage, and that's the only way that you get better. But once you do comedy for a while, you have all these tips and tricks in your arsenal so that you can get back on track. What's it like when something really goes over well? When you get this huge... Best feeling in the world. It's just a huge accomplishment when someone is relating to something that you wrote, that you created, that you thought was funny. And someone else gets that, and you're like, oh. Like, I've had people come up to me. My son just got back from Afghanistan. This is in the past. And he was suicidal, and he didn't want to come out tonight, and he had the best time. And you're like, oh, from my dumb little joke? You know what I mean? (laughs) I fixed one man in the world. (laughs) Right. For a night. And then there was another lady who had lost her husband, and she felt guilty going, I've been out since before the pandemic. I lost my husband, and you made me feel better tonight. And you're like... It's just, 
it's odd in the sense that you're like, all I did was tell jokes. But if you made one person feel better, then I did my job. It's like a, an endorphin rush. Absolutely. It does make you feel better. Stand-up seems like one of the most vulnerable forms of art. And you as a comic, you share personal stories. You bear your soul. You're on stage. It's a live audience. And you don't get to decide how they react. What's your take on comedy just as an art form in and of itself? Well, and its place in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think it is very vulnerable. Um, the only other vulnerable type of thing that I can compare it to is when people do a one-man show. You are a one-man show, though. I mean, you are. But sometimes it, you go one after the other on a stage. But yeah, yeah, it is. But like, I don't know if you saw any of John Leguizamo's one-man shows. No, I know the name, but Back I don't in the day, remember that. He talks about abuse and other things, and it literally makes you tear up because he's so good. But it's more of a performance and less – it's it's theatrical, but it's real. It's Like raw. a monologue? Yeah, and it's raw, but it's his real life. Like his material that he's telling you about isn't anything that he made up or, or, or wrote or played a character. So it's pretty deep, yeah. It's deep. And I think comedy can be like that. Like, like Spalding Gray, I'm thinking of. Yeah. He used to sit at a desk like this yeah. and do these, I don't know, hour-long monologues yeah. on and Broadway just or Just opening himself up. And when you're a comic, you're opening yourself up to, for people to laugh. You're opening yourself up for people to judge. You're opening people up for to ridicule you if they don't like it or think they're funnier than you. So... It's a very vulnerable art, but I think it's important because on the relatable level, like we're all human beings, we're all people, and we've become a very me society with cell phones, and like I liken it to a concert, like when I used to go to Grateful Dead concerts, everybody worked as one group, and it, everyone was having fun. Not everyone had a cell phone, and they were yelling stuff out, and it wasn't about them. It was a group experience. And I feel like we've lost some of that in our new society with the cell phones and, you know, like, especially since the pandemic, when people first started coming out, they didn't know how to work as a group anymore. So you need an audience to do your job. Do you feel or do other comics you know feel like they have to tone down what they say sometimes? I think a lot of comics want to be true to themselves. And I think that in this age of Karens and other people making it their business to squash something that they don't think is right, I think it's been hard. I think it depends on where you are. Like if a corporate company hires you to do a job, they sometimes have restrictions on what they want you to do. Yes. You know, stay away from this, stay away from that, because they have to protect their company and they don't want any of their employees to feel bad or singled out or whatever I understand that I'll do whatever you ask me to do when you're in a club and you're telling jokes you have to read the audience on what they want to hear but if you're one of those comics that just wants to get your agenda out and you don't care what happens then do your do your thing but know that there's probably going to be fallout you know what I mean but if you're okay with that be okay with it but it depends on what you're trying to achieve. Like, I want to entertain people. I want people to have fun. I don't want anybody to leave feeling like I singled anybody out or 
poked fun at someone because they're different because I don't do that. I don't want anyone to feel bad. I want people to be entertained and feel happy when they leave. That's the kind of comic I am. I'm not someone that's up there with an agenda trying to force my politics on someone. And there are comics that do that. Anything that pisses you off about the industry? The thing that pisses me off the most recently is when a YouTube sensation gets booked as a headliner at a comedy club because they have X number of followers online and they tell jokes in their bedroom. And then they get to the venue, they book them because they have all these followers, they're going to sell tickets. I understand from the venue's perspective, they want to get butts in the seats. And then this person gets, you know, an hour and they can't do it because they haven't been vetted. They haven't gone through the system. They haven't worked at a comedy club. And what you're doing with social media doesn't always translate it in doesn't, the real world. And then they get booked once. And then some people go to that and go, well, he wasn't funny or she wasn't funny. And so they have a bad impression of the of, whole thing. Of the whole art. And you're like, well, because they weren't ready to do that. So women are getting more attention these days, but even decades ago, it wasn't that way. I guess what I'm saying is the playing field still doesn't seem level. No, and I don't know if it ever will be, because there's this assumption that women aren't funny. Jerry Lewis has said it. um, Other people have said it. And I think that a lot of times when when I walk out on stage, they introduce me, people know I'm a woman, I'm in a hole immediately. Because of what's happened in the past and what people think comedy is. So I have to dig out of that hole immediately. So I have a couple jokes that I know get laughs, and I do those right away. I've had a lot of men come up to me after shows and saying, you know, I don't think women Mm -hmm. comics are funny, but I found you very funny. And I used to get pissed about that, but it's actually a compliment. So they're saying, you changed my thinking. And that's something that I always have in my mind like I don't do I don't bash men in my act I don't um I try not to do jokes that are exclusive to women and um exclude the men in the audience I just try to be funny for both everyone that's there are there jokes you feel like you can't tell because you are a woman and then there's jokes in the reverse are there jokes that you think men can't tell anymore well there's jokes that I won't tell as a woman like I'm not going to talk about my period and you're all. not no because <laughs> i don't talk about that anyway right. um no one wants to he- i don't know f- like, typically don't no and it can be funny it's just not something i want to talk about um i think men tend to talk about things they know but almost every new male comic starts with jerk off jokes so they usually evolve out of that which comics have you worked with over the years who you admire I got to work with Kevin Meany, who was like my comedy idol before I started. So that was, he's since passed away, which was sad, but he was awesome. And he was really nice. And the booker told him, (laughs) it was a very um, misery type of (laughs) meeting because he said, Carolyn says you're your biggest, she's your biggest fan. I was like, oh, why would you say that? Um And he laughed. It's a compliment. But he a small laughed it one. off. He laughed it off, but he felt a little uncomfortable. And then I had a message from one of his friends, and then we we ended up being really friendly. But he was really cool. I just worked with Steve Sweeney last night, and I used to watch him on the evening at the Improv before I knew him, and thought he did all these impressions. And I thought he was great, and we've since become friendly in the comedy world. And it's nice when you have people that have been around forever that it, you admire, and then they they help you along and stuff like that. 
I met Kevin Farley, Chris Farley's brother, and I had never met him before. And I ended up, it was in a time where I was thinking about quitting comedy because you all go through that. Uh, you question, you know, am I wasting my time and all that stuff? And so I did a guest spot and I, I wanted to stay home and watch Dateline, but my friend made me go to the show. <laughs> it was a Friday night. He's like, can I talk to you? And he gave me a new perspective on comedy because I didn't know him. He's like, are you on the show tomorrow? I go, no, I just did a guest spot. He's like, can you come back tomorrow? And he was really helpful and nice. And we talked about the industry and how he struggled a little bit, too, because he's always in his brother's shadow. But he's funny in his own right. And he, you know, it's it's sad that people don't. Obviously, they're going to. Yeah, equate the two. Equate the two. Because we loved Chris Farley. Oh, I loved Chris Farley. But Kevin's funny, too. It's like, he's funny on a different way. You know what I mean? But Have you met Bill Burr? I know I, he's from Mass. I have met Bill Burr. What do you think of him? I love him. He's so nice. Oh, he, he really is nice in yeah, person, Yeah, he's huh? nice in person. I met him. I didn't know who he was because he was gone when I started. And he would come back every once in a while. Yeah. But he's still... Kevin Knox was one of the biggest guys in Boston comedy, and he was a sweetheart of a guy, and he got cancer. And he was sick for a long time, and he did um, alternative medicine, and they gave him six months to live, and he lived like another seven years, and then he finally got a tumor that they couldn't operate on, and he passed away. But right before that, they did a fundraiser for him, and Bill Byrd drove from New York and came up just to do the fundraiser. Like He's that kind of a guy. He's a good guy. Because he remembered him from back in the day. Like, he gave him a ton of stage time, you know. And that's one of the things I love about Boston comedy. We come together when people need help. Yeah, it feels like a family, I bet. Yeah, it is like a family. And you produce a lot of talent in Boston. You really do. Yeah. Well, in I, the surrounding areas. One of the things about Boston, like, I've gone out to Burbank and done the Burbank Comedy Festival. And I don't have an accent, really. No, um, you don't. Because I grew up in New Hampshire. My dad grew up in Mass, and he made sure we did not have the accent. <laughs> He would correct. Well, I'm from Oklahoma, so I should have one, but I don't either. Yeah, he would made sure that we didn't have the whole Massachusetts action, which I actually find endearing now that I live down there when I get home from a trip. I'm I like, do too, yeah. especially when a cowboy has that southern drawl. Oh, yeah, it just like, melts it's just, my heart. It just you know you're home, you know. Like yeah. So I think good comedy requires someone to be intelligent. I think it also requires you to tell the truth and. You need to be authentic. And if you can be those three things, you've got a lot to offer. What do you think the ingredients are? I totally agree with you as far as um, you have to be intelligent because one of the things that screws you up when a heckler interrupts you is you're telling a joke. You're taking in the audience's reaction of that joke. You're thinking of your next joke and how it relates to everything that's going on so if you have a heckler and they interrupt you screws you up timing is very important you can't teach timing you can get better with timing but timing is sort of like a natural thing how do you create comedy when you were learning from that guy way back when (laughs) like what are some of the bullet points the thing about when you're a storyteller comic you can't just tell a story like you can't just get up there and tell a story and ramble on and blah 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 the audience will get bored So if you're like an Ellen DeGeneres who tells stories about her mom, you'll notice that if she tells a story when she's doing stand-up, she'll stop and have something funny and then go on and continue the story and say something. Oh, keep sprinkling laughs throughout it. So she sprinkles and so that the audience... Deliberately. So the audience stays engaged. If you're telling a story at a party, 
you can embellish, you can talk forever, you can add detail, but you don't have to make sure you're hitting the right points. It's a totally different cadence than when you're telling a joke that's a story. So what else do you need to do? What else are you, you need thinking to be conf- of? You need to be confident because if the audience thinks you don't think it's funny, then they're not going to think it's funny. You have to stand by whatever you say because if you're sort of like, anyway, you know, in- instead of anyway, it's a totally different. You have to lead people in a sense. Like when you're giving a speech on some topic, you have to sound like you know what you're talking about. What other elements are important? Well, a lot of times I do it differently now. I used to write out premises. Like um, I have a premise. Now I put it in my phone. So I have a keep your notes app and I'll talk in the car and I'll save it. Then I'll go back to it and be like, why did I think that was funny? But I have one in there now um, that I haven't figured out how to make it funny yet, but there's something there. This son in Massachusetts surrendered 832 parakeets that his mom was hoarding. So it was on the news. It made me laugh. And I was like, how do you get to 832 and then realize you have a problem? <laughs> also, how is, the, how is the Humane Society supposed to rehome 832 Are there parakeets? that many people in Massachusetts who want one? Yeah, is there a big demand for parakeets? Also... Who was reproducing to produce 832 parakeets? <laughs> right. Are these just weird inbred birds now? Like, and, and these are the kind of things like I'm like, okay, well, there's a funny premise, but I haven't figured out what direction to take it in. Yet. Yeah, I get what you're saying. You can just watch the news and you know there's something there. And then maybe in the future we can build on it and make it right. funny. What's your process? You know, Mark Marin. He has a few sticky notes. Maybe he's oh, got yeah. some scribbles in a notebook. And then Joan Rivers, I know, had like 52 drawers of alphabetized yeah, index cards jokes. I have a bag full like, of promises like Mark Marin that are on sticky notes. But like I said, now I put them in my phone. So I'll go through my phone and um, the premises are in there. And if I've written the joke, the whole joke is in there. I'm trying to minimize the words and get to the funny part faster. So if I can create the the premise shorter and then come up with something really funny, then it's a better joke and timing and all that stuff. In a way, it's like when you write a song. Yeah, you need exa- to know how long it needs to be, when to hit the rhyme, all of that. And it's and a whole process. There's a rhythm to it, like music, too, because... You want to hit X number of laughs per minute. There's a whole science behind it. People like, if you're doing an X number of set, it should have this many laughs per minute. And I'm like, I don't think about that too much. I just, I try to get the initial laugh so I can relax. And then I, I try to build on that. The singer-songwriter Hardy says that when he goes to write a song, he knows that he has done his job if he can get people to feel something. So how do you know you've done your job? I know it's the laughs, but anything else? It's the laughs and the reaction. When you get feedback initially at a show, it's great because you're like, okay. So, or, or, and if you did a new joke, you're like, all right, so people are relating to that so I can expand on that. That's what's good about live comedy. You get immediate feedback. You've been a comic, what, 23? 23 coming up on 24 years. What have you learned about other people? And about yourself? 
Well, the pandemic really made me reflect on my life. <laughs> I think a lot of people We did. had no choice. We had no choice. We were in lockdown. We had a curfew in Massachusetts, which I broke a lot. Um, <laughs> but, you, you know, you were alone, left with your thoughts. And my thing was, do I want to be driving to an Elks Lodge when I'm 60 and telling jokes? And at, in the middle of it, I was like, I don't know if I want to be doing that. And then... After, well, in February, I got booked on Comics Come Home. And it was the exact right time that I needed to get booked on something big because it put everything in perspective. I was like, okay, so I'm on the right path. And this is what I want to do. And that's like something I've always wanted to do. So here I am getting the opportunity. And it just, I said, I want to tell jokes. Like, if I have to do it at an Elks Lodge when I'm 60, so be it. It's not a bad thing. Right, because I love it. I love making people laugh. They need to laugh, too. Yeah. And for a long time, I was like, I mean, now I make money. Like, it's not about the money, though. It's about you get paid to do your art. Yeah, you're one of the lucky ones. Who doesn't want to do that? Like, why would I? It doesn't always matter. Like, I was in some weird hall last night where they do gymnastics upstairs, and there's a function room downstairs <laughs> with a bar. And I was like, this is one of the weirdest places I've ever done comedy. It smells like feet. Yeah. <laughs> Not the weirdest place, but one of the weirdest places. And it worked. Good. And I got paid, and people left happy. So well, that's, why, why that's would I the not point, want to do that? Yeah. Right? So I think comedy, too, can help people who suffer. And I know this isn't really the kind of comedy you do typically, but I think when people are suffering, they're sometimes shamed into silence about the traumatic things that happen to them. And some comics I've seen do a really good job exposing those truths of that suffering that they've experienced. People like Hannah Gadsby when she talks about sexual violence, Dave Chappelle when he talks about racism, And I think comedy can really help people not feel alone. And those comics, too, can be activists in some way and be catalysts for change. So I think it's a really helpful dynamic in some ways and a very um, important part, an important function in society when people can do that kind of comedy. What do you think of that form of comedy? I definitely think that that's something that you can work through any type of tragedy or diversity in life. Obviously, I wouldn't do jokes about racism. I'm a white lady from New Hampshire. Like <laughs> My experience is much different than Dave Chappelle's. But I might be able to talk on, um, I had a friend who died of addiction, and we talk about it in our circles, and we make jokes about how his attitude was at some points. I don't think when it's happening that you make the jokes, but afterwards you can look back and reflect and make it funny to deal with the 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 sadness that you had to deal with. You can make it funny and it makes it makes you feel better about the situation. What kind of projects are you working on these days? These days I have I I'm supposed to do comics come home this year, so I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully that will happen. I am working on a sitcom with my friends, filming a pilot for that. Tell me about that. That sounds super cool. Um, It's actually called Finding the Funny, and it's all booked with Boston Comics. The main character has lost his... He doesn't think there's anything funny in his life. And I play 
a comic that's a friend of his. And he's talking about all this stuff happening, and it's actually really it's, – it's life that could be really funny, but he hasn't found the funny part in it yet. Yep. And so all these other characters help him go, what do you mean there's nothing funny in your life? This happened, this happened. Make that funny. And that's the premise of the first episode. You film the pilot, you get people interested, you raise money, and then you start shopping it around. Got it. So if someone liked it and they said, yeah, give me 10 episodes and it, you know, you try to sell it as a pilot. And yeah, then, that's a lot of work. And then you got to sell it to a network. Or, but there's a, lot, there's a lot of different networks now. It's not just the main three anymore. You've got Netflix, you've you know, Amazon Prime, you've got Hulu. You know, like it might just be a limited Peacock series. Like There's so many streaming platforms now i'm excited about that because i've never done that i need a little bit of advice and i'm wondering if you can help me on a few questions (laughs) to sort of wrap up our show i bought a hula hoop recently and i don't know where in hell it was made but i've got some scientific advice in the instructions and one of them i just don't know what to make of this women should not exercise during pregnancy or menstruation with the hula hoop so what am i supposed to do that one week out of four <laughs> pogo stick <laughs> that seems worse <laughs> i mean i don't think it has a disclaimer on it though i would think hula hoop would be a good one for those two things because um it seems low impact well what i have been doing that week is teaching my poodle to jump through it and he's really good at it now <laughs> nice anyway one of my best friends is canadian And I swear, I mean, no joke, everything she owns is red. Her mittens, her hat, her car, her laptop. Should they even be citizens here in the country? (laughs) I mean, we have a lot of plaid. I don't know. I do know that Tim Horton's Dunkin' Donuts bastard cousin is in Canada. (laughs) And that doesn't make any sense. Because if you go to a Tim Horton's, they have um, combos. And it's usually like a bear claw, a tuna fish sandwich, and a coffee (laughs) That's disgusting. It's so weird. <laughs> um, but I don't know about the color red. I mean, I have a plaid jacket, and uh, I'm from New Hampshire, and I get called out on that a lot. They're like, that's very unbrand for you. I'm like, <laughs> what does that mean? Not wearing Hunter Orange. Like they know what you should look like. Yeah, you look like you're from New Hampshire. Well, what does that mean? So while we're on the subject of weird states, is it Florida? Florida or Florida, like the band. It's Florida. I wouldn't want to live in Florida either because they have weird bugs. They have a lot of lizards and people keep leaving snakes in the Everglades. So they have a the giant snake hunt every year. Have you ever seen that? No, but you we had a bunch money. of poisonous snakes, snakes where I grew up and I hate snakes. Yeah, I don't like snakes, but they have these snakes that have like basically been able to run wild like boa constrictors and they're like 800 pounds and they they have a snake hunt every year for these people to go out and kill these snakes because they're they're not um supposed to be in that environment and they're taking over and it it is horrifying (laughs) (laughs) like you see these snakes and you're like they're just living out there like in the wild yeah they eat alligators like they're they're giant the crocodiles or whatever they are down there i always get mixed up if they're crocodiles or alligators but gators they uh (laughs) they eat them they're that big they're huge so how many cats can you own before you're the crazy cat lady see i don't think it's the number of cats i think it's the amount of crazy you can have one cat and still be a crazy cat lady 
Oh, so I phrased it wrong. <laughs> you know those old women who play bingo and they have that oxygen tank and they're still smoking? Yep. What do you think of a lady like that? I think she knows what she wants. I played bingo once in Maine and um, I had to get the electronic bingo because I couldn't keep up with the dauber. And I won 600 bucks the first time I played because I won two separate games and then the last game. Nice. Um, because no one else could have won the way that my board looked. And I had old ladies cursing me out. You're new. You won. You won. And they give you, I mean, $600 isn't too bad for the first time. I think I, I paid like 25 bucks to play. So they were pissed. <laughs> you had to sneak out of there. Yeah. What gets under my skin is that house hunter show. You know, you have people like Ashley and Josh, and they're looking for this house, and she's the one who takes the stylized photos of babies, and he makes artisanal charcuterie boards out of reclaimed wood. But somehow they've got a budget of $1.5 million, and then when they finally settle in a house, they're still a little iffy about it because they don't like the paint. I don't. I don't watch a lot of those shows. I used to watch the one where they trading spaces. Yeah. Where they'd bring the designer in, and you could tell when they absolutely hated it because <laughs> they <laughs> like there was one where they actually uh, stapled hay to the walls. <laughs> it was awful. I would be so mad if that was my house. And allergic. And they were like, um, <laughs> different thing. So my last question: If the last two years were a mixed drink. What's the recipe? Shit and whiskey. <laughs> Seriously. Because the pandemic was shit, and you needed the whiskey to get by. Right. <laughs> I like that. Thanks a lot, Carolyn. <laughs> Thank you for I really appreciate me. your time today. You can find the calendar of Carolyn's upcoming shows at carolynplummer.com. P-L-U-M-M-E-R. No B. She's not a real plumber. Follow Diary of a Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review my work at Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm.